Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be here with you today, Ben. Hey, John. How are you doing tonight? Doing good. So, Ben, in our very first episode, we talked about hating your family and um, the fact that Jesus basically explicitly commands you to hate your father and mother and children and brothers and sisters and how radical that really is, especially in light of modern evangelical Christians today consider family values to be such an important thing. But not just Jesus um, in the Gospels, but you also have Paul that also seems to have a pretty anti-family message. And um, we went through many verses, which we'll talk about again here, but We've had quite a reaction from Christians. This really has seemed to struck a nerve with a lot of evangelicals who did not really like what we had to say. I think that what they really didn't like is what Jesus had to say, because mostly what we were doing was literally word for word quoting the Bible. But we've been involved with uh, several very interesting Reddit conversations about that show, and um, we thought it would be fun to kind of go back, readdress Uh, you know, our initial points and look at what some of the responses were from some of the people on Reddit. Yeah, there were some pretty fascinating discussions on Reddit. um, And this episode seemed like it uh, was garnishing a lot of attention as well. So, um, you know, there's no getting around it. The statement that Jesus makes in Luke 14 about hating your mother and father to be his disciple is certainly... uh, it's certainly provocative. And so the you would expect a reaction from such a provocative statement, and that's, I think, the reaction that the audience for Luke's gospel, uh, that's what Luke intended for that audience to have, and I think that, that a lot of that reaction is what we got on Reddit. I think that particularly this concept of um, being alienated from your family is um, interesting because it kind of opens up the discussion for some deeper principles in uh, historical criticism. So um, as we go along, too, we can talk about that. It did come up a few times in the Reddit conversations as well. So let me just uh, restate the verse, that the main verse that we're talking about, which comes from Luke. Luke 14, it's uh, 26 through 28. If anyone comes to me... This is Jesus talking. And does not hate 
father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And there's a couple like things that came to mind as I reread this after the first episode. First of all, if your argument, and I know some people's argument is, well, it doesn't really mean hate, and it's really talking about the unbelieving family members. Well, that's not really true because it also talks about hating your own life. And you, it, it, it's clearly asking you to be a disciple of Jesus, a believer of Jesus. So um, in that case, it couldn't possibly mean that it's only talking about non-believers. What Jesus is talking about is a radically different idea of what the family is. The family is no longer, as we said in the first episode, your biological family. Your new family. You have a new family. You're born again. And your new family is this family of believers. And um, there's many other verses where um, this is brought out in the New Testament. One comes to mind is Mark 3, 31 through 34, where Jesus' mother, so Mary and, and Jesus' brothers, arrived, standing outside they, while Jesus was in with his followers. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus said, Who are my mothers and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and, and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. It can't be more clear. And the reason I bring this up, Ben, is that some of the first um, comments to your post about this were people talking about context. They would say, this this person, Resident Gazelle 5650 on Reddit said, there's a thing called context. Um, and then KP Kimmel says, context, learn it and don't make such bold, inaccurate statements. And the context to everything that we're talking about further bolsters what we're saying, not just the context, but another criteria that many Christians use is, well, you use scripture to interpret scripture. Well, if you use these other verses from the New Testament that we're talking about, which are really the only verses where Jesus talks about family, um, the context is totally clear that Jesus is actually saying, yes, you need to hate your family. Yeah, I think that it's it's interesting that the first principle of hermeneutics is to read what the text actually says. And then the second principle is to interpret what the text means. So I think it's interesting that people immediately jump from the first principle to the second without like... So the first thing you need to do is read what the text actually says. One of the people was saying that the Greek is, is not really hate. Um, but yeah, so back to context. The immediate context in the verses in, in the chapter in Luke 14 are not helpful to the purpose that um, people are trying to make. Um, Jesus talks about uh, he heals on the Sabbath. Um, he talks about um, he sh- he gives a parable and talks about privileging the poor and the needy um, and to not privilege those who would be uh, people that you would normally renowned. And then he basically um, changes settings completely and is being followed by a crowd and starts out with this uh, extremely provocative statement that you can't be his disciple unless you hate your mother, mother and father. So I don't see really anything in the context that is helpful or that would um, neuter that 
phrase in any way. The, the message that Jesus is saying, I think, is clear and is not um, diminished at all by the context that's around it. If anything, it makes it even more jarring. Um, there's a change of scenery right before it. And um, the message in the context before and after is about everything that you have to give up and that you should privilege um, not the things that you should assume that you would privilege, the wealthy, the uh, renowned, or your family, but that you should privilege the poor, the needy, and the new collective of believers that are your new family. So the, um, the verse I mentioned about uh, do not call anyone on earth your father. Um, this comes from Matthew 23, 9, where Jesus says, And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. And Creed Bratton, a user on Reddit, again, um, talking about context, brings up the point that the context of those verses are, um, if, you read, if you read further back from verse 8 and go all the way through, it says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. But again, the context doesn't get you out of the problem here. Um, he says, in context, it's pretty obvious that when it says father, it's the context of rabbis, teachers, elders, etc., not your dad. So this isn't about family. Um, well, okay, so are you saying that when Jesus says, don't call anyone on earth father, he's saying, you are allowed to call somebody father? I mean, I'm not taking it out of context. He does talk about rabbis and teachers, and then he moves on to brothers, and then he talks about father, and then he, you know, and then he goes on to talk about instructors, etc. So again, I don't think the context really gets you out of the problem, and again, it totally fits in with the verse I just read about when he said, when he basically was talking about his own mother, and he said, "No, my my mother are th- that those that do my father's will," like he he again is abolishing this bloodline family. It's amazing to me how these, um, these Christians who um, purport to believe in Jesus and want to worship Jesus are so keen on not actually listening to what Jesus himself says. Yeah, I think one of the challenges with having conversations in Reddit um, and having conversations with Christians in general is there's a real resistance to being able to even look closely at the text itself. Um, and what I really want to get across to people is that it's important to let the text actually mean what the text is trying to say. And when you just impose your own meaning that's clearly not there, that's not showing respect to the text. Just because it doesn't go along with your basic assumption for what would be there is you can't just immediately change what is in the text because you don't like it. Now, if it's talking about rabbis and teachers, then what's even the point of inserting fathers in there if he already has rabbis and teachers in there? It wouldn't even make any sense if you 
changed it in the verse. You would say rabbis, teachers, rabbis, teachers. Like it, it's just nonsensical. Yeah. Why um, would he even mention the word father? Because yeah. he already mentioned rabbis. It makes no sense. And if he's mentioning brothers, then he clearly is talking about families. And uh, I think that they started to make some sort of uh, argument that fathers was a name that were given to religious leaders back then. I think that's pretty uh, ahistorical. I don't think that's a very good historical argument. Um, no, and and again, like uh, to argue against their point, like in the context of the entire New Testament, um, it's very clear that this is talking about families, and it goes right along with all these other. We're not talking about just one verse, you know. We're talking yeah. about lots of different verses. So, Rock Lobster three thirty three from Reddit, um, talking about the Luke passage where Jesus says that um, he has to hate his father and mother, wife brothers and sisters, etc. Um, he says, the word translated as hate actually means lo- to love less. And um, so I looked it up, and that's not true. The um, the word, I think it's, I don't have it in front of me, I think it's missio, missio or missio, I don't know how to, how to pronounce it, but it is the definitions that I find um, all translated as hate or despise I don't find it translated as to prefer less, which is the way they would like to put it. Um, And I think it's ironic that every New Testament translation, um, I'd have to go and look at them individually, but all the ones that I've seen has it translated as hate um, because that's what the word means. Yeah, I think I remember that comment, and he also stated he gave some sort of a, this is the biblical use of the term hate. And had like four examples, and I think two of the four were from the old, from the Old Testament. And I'm like, that can't even be the same word. One is in Hebrew, and one is in Greek. So, you know, you're making an assumption that's totalizing uh, an English word that's a translation instead of looking at what the actual word that was used um, and what it actually means in the context, which is clear. Um, yeah, to sh- to make that point. They would have to show us the Greek usage of the Greek word in an ancient text, not just the Bible, that translates it in the way that um, that he's saying. But again, I think it's interesting that the Bible translators uh, tra- all translate it into hate, and they do that for a reason because that's like the best way to translate it. And a lot of these translations, um, they're not necessarily like um, very critical. A lot of them will will always make they'll make the more palatable interpretation in favor of even of Christianity. So when you see the word hate in there, it's a good um, indication that that's really the best translation of the word. And I think it's interesting that the parallel verse in Matthew does say something like, um, love less. Um, you, you, must, you must prefer um, Jesus over your family. I know I'm not quoting that exactly right, Ben, but but the, and that goes to our point that when when Matthew used the same source as Luke when he got to this word that said hate, um, he said, "Oh, I can't put this in there. I need to I need to water it down a little bit and soften the edge on it," which is what Matthew does. Um, now, if you're saying that, "Oh no, Matthew and Luke are two completely independent witnesses of the words of Jesus," well, then you have another problem. It's like, well, which one did Jesus say? Because he's two. He's clearly saying two different things there. I mean, if you're saying like every red letter 
uh, section of the New Testament was actual words that Jesus spoke. I know many people that believe that. Well, then you'd have to say that, well, I guess Jesus spoke both of those sayings. Yeah, it's actually fascinating. So I have the Matthew passage in front of me. Um, and it's so the assumption would be that this is a passage that's not in Mark and it is in Matthew. I mean, Matthew and Luke, these clearly came from the same source or a source saying because it's so similar. So Matthew says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So it's, it's fascinating to me. When people tell me that Luke 14 is saying, no, it's just saying, love me more than your family. Because that's literally what Matthew's saying. So you're forcing Luke, because you don't like what Luke is saying, to say the same thing that Matthew is saying. When the clear implication is both of them looked at a saying, and one of them changed it to something else that they felt was more palatable. Because that's just the interpretive technique that you use. If, if there's a saying that's more problematic, it's more likely to be changed. And that's a redactive process that happens that we see in the Bible all the time. Um, we can see it in Matthew and Luke's use of Mark, where they have Mark as a source and change Mark in different ways, where they find Mark problematic. And Matthew and Luke have the same source for this. Most people assume that it's the source Q or that, that they call theoretically Q. Um, and whatever the original statement of Q was that Jesus made, or you know that Q has as a Jesus statement, either Matthew or Luke took it and modified it. Um, the other interesting thing is if you go right before that part, uh, right before that passage in Matthew, in Matthew 10, 34, um, it says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So it's not exactly like Matthew's redaction totally gets you out of the anti-family problem, because literally right before that in Matthew, he's got uh, um, a prediction that the members of your own household will turn against you. So it's very interesting. This is obviously, to me, it seems like it's obviously a strand of early Christian thought that they believe went back to Jesus, and that um, while it's problematic, was considered to be authentic enough that it persisted, even though it's very um, ambiguous and problematic. Yeah, and there's other passages that um, back up what you're saying. I mean, when the when the man came to Jesus and said he wanted to follow him, and Jesus said, he said, but I have to go and bury my father first. Jesus didn't say, well, yeah, that's your earthly father who you love. Go and take care of your family matters and then family. He basically said, no, like, you can't follow me then. Uh, you can't be a disciple of me. So that that fits right into what we're talking about. Some Someone here, this guy, uh, his name is Read the Bible 7, says... Um, the hate directed at family members would be for family that were enemies of the gospel. So now we have two different answers to this question. Some people are saying it doesn't actually mean hate at all. And then you have other Christians say it does mean hate, but not, not hate for the actual Christians. Um, again, I would say, well, the Bible doesn't actually say that at all. 
Uh, you're just you're literally adding your own words to make it more palatable for yourself. And then I would also add like, okay, well, as a Christian, does that mean that if you have family members that are unbelievers, you should hate them? And do you actually do that? Um, I we had some people on Reddit say to us like, oh, well, did you do you hate your family now? And we're <laughs> and we said, well, we're not the ones who believe this, and we're not the ones who are saying this. Like this is. This is the teachings of Jesus, who you are claiming to believe. So, like, the onus is on you to do these things, not on us. Yeah, it was shocking how quickly people would get angry as if I was the one that made the statement, and the statement didn't come from the Bible. And and again, it, it like, to me, the irony was so thick, because it's literally... I mean, I'm sure that the statement when Luke put it in, knew that, like, in that society, family was valued even more than our society. And the relation between children and their parents was, like, um, a, a relationship of the utmost respect. Like, um, so for that audience, it would have been even more shocking. But it still is shocking to people today to the point where they don't want to deal with even what the passage says or immediately write it off or, or try to obfuscate um, the clear meaning. Or again, just claim that Luke is saying the same thing as Matthew, but without addressing the initial problem of, well, well then does that mean that Luke just wrote it down wrong? Um, if they're drawing from the same statement, well, if Matthew got it right, then why did Luke write it down that way? Why did Luke make it say hate if that's not what the original thing said when he knew that that would be controversial. It's still, you still have the question of why Luke puts it that way. No matter what you do, you can't really get away from why was the statement crafted in that way. And just saying that it says it means the same thing as Matthew doesn't get you out of that problem either. Yeah, Ben, and I think it's interesting. I know me and you also looked at a parallel passage in the Gospel of Thomas, which I know Christians won't take seriously, but... Um, but scholars and historians certainly do because it's an ancient text, um, so it can give you some insight. And clearly Thomas was working off of the same source that Matthew and Luke were working off of. We can see that in many places in the, in the gospel text. And what do you know? Thomas also has the Luke version of the story where Jesus says, you must hate your family. Um, but I, I wanted to read another um, section of a comment from Read the Bible 7, this, this uh, person on Reddit. He says... Family and children are idols when our love and devotion to them is placed before God. The enemy puts family on a pe puts family on a pedestal because it is an idol humans feel really good about worshiping, and so they are easily deceived into thinking putting their family before God is a good and righteous thing to do. And he's saying he goes on. He's basically saying, but that Jesus, that's what this passage is saying. It's saying don't put your family before God. But again, he's just writing his own gospel at this point, because Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus could have easily said that. Uh, he, he does say something like that in Matthew, like we said, but in Luke, this is not what he's saying at all. And um, Ben, I liked your response to him, um, because then you bring up the other passage that I just read before about when Jesus' family came looking for him, and you say, his family comes looking for him, and he says, you are not, you are not my real family. These disciples are my real family. So if his family were, quote-unquote, obviously faithful believers, why did Jesus say they were not his family? Because the point of the passage is rejection of the biological family. And that's what I think these people really do not want to accept, that what Jesus is doing is rejecting the biological family, because that's something that they are not willing to do. 
And if it's saying, oh, well, you must be willing to reject your biological family. Well, first of all, it doesn't say that. It says you must reject your biological family. And second of all, like by the, the reason that you're interpreting it that way is because you actually are not willing to reject your biological family. I just think all of that is very interesting. Yeah, it's, there's so much talk of like cheap grace and uh, and uh, like how the culture like can't accept Christ because it would require them to make like a fundamental change. But I honestly think that evangelicals don't read things that they find problematic in Scripture in a way because they don't want to actually have to change. Like the difficult thing would be to have to sever all ties with your biological family, would be to give away all your uh, belongings to the poor, um, would be to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Those are not necessarily like the things that people think of when they think of um, true uh, faith in Christ or true Christianity. They think of like protesting uh, like a gay, uh, a trans uh, book reading or something like that. And it's just like... We can talk about the ways that the Bible is problematic in um, what it prescribes, but that's not what I don't. That's not what I think the Bible is prescribing. Um, that's really difficult. These are the things that are really difficult. And I, another thing someone said too is like this is a metaphorical statement that you're turning into this giant thing. If it's a metaphorical statement, well, what's the metaphor? Right. I, I don't understand the metaphor. <laughs> and and in lieu of all these other passages, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, it's not just the Gospels even, um, but these other, other passages that ser- seriously cast doubt on um, the sort of traditional idea, cultural idea of family values of uh, evangelical Christianity, I, I just think that it, it's very clear that... Um, there's cultural reasons these people are resistant to these ideas that more so than interpretive reasons. Yeah, that's what I keep coming back to also is, you know, I would actually be a little bit sympathetic to some of their arguments if I was ta- if we were taking one verse that seems really weird and just harping on it where there was really no other, like within, within the Gospels, no other verses that backed up what we were saying. I would kind of, you know, I would be less... Uh, energetic about making this point. I might say, oh, that's an interesting verse. We might do it on Bible says what, because that's just one verse. But no, this is like all throughout the New Testament, uh, both in the epistles and in the Gospels, um, because the Apostle Paul talks about how it's better not to get married. It's better not to give your children in marriage, because, you know, he he thought that Jesus was coming in any day, and we just need to hunker down and wait for the end. Like, I'm sorry if you if that's inconvenient, but that's exactly what he's talking about. That's exactly what it says. And it's a lot easier for a Christian to say, oh, yeah, I'm willing to sell everything I have. I don't have to do it, but I'm willing to do it. Or, I'm yeah, I'm willing to leave my family for Jesus, but I don't actually have to do it. Um, it's very easy to say that, but, um, to actually, uh, do what Jesus says is, it really is a radical thing. And if, and if you're actually, you know, a Bible believing Christian, you should, um, do what Jesus actually says. Someone in one of these comments brought up the, uh, the nuns in the Catholic church and saying, yeah, that's what they do. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a point to that. They're taking it a lot more seriously. Um, they are not given in marriage, and they are not having any children, and they largely do stay away from their family uh, in many cases. So 
you know, at least it's a better example of someone that's actually making a real sacrifice to be a Christian. So much of like American evangelical Christians want to just have whatever wealth they want to have and and live all the pleasures of the American life, whatever there is there. But then, and and say, well, there's no sacrifice needed. Like their theology, the way they interpret the Bible, conveniently um, sidesteps anything that would make them make those sacrifices. And again, Ben and John are not telling you to make those sacrifices. It's Jesus telling you to do that. You're literally arguing against like the, the literal words of Jesus. And the only way you get around it is by adding in a whole bunch of extra of your own words into the Bible that Jesus doesn't say. Yeah, it's just funny. Like the um, the interpretive process is always like to um, use scripture to interpret scripture. So there's always like an assumption where you're like, well, it couldn't mean that because this other place. But for these verses, like there's so many different places where it it's indicated. And and I think like you you touched on it. There's like eschatological reasons for this as well. And that's like a huge part of the undercurrent of I would say all the gospels and the writings of Paul is like they expect the immediate return of Christ. And so the like sort of things that we think of as long-term goals or a long-term plan or even like the connection to um worldly or or a connection to like permanent things. It's almost like the movie Heat, like you can't be tied down to anything that you can't leave uh when you feel the heat is on on your back. So it's like a wife uh, kids, like those are all really uh, just encumbrance uh, for when Christ returns. Um, the same thing with wealth. Wealth is like, there's no reason to be accumulating wealth. Like Christ is going to return soon. So there's not like an economic model that's given. Um, and everything is very cultish, like people giving away all their belongings and following the, the leader and, uh, you know, um, but I also think that there's like an emancipatory idea within this too of of rejecting the sort of like genetic hierarchy of those that are closest to you and being able to embrace a community outside of your immediate family as being your family. So I'm sort of of two minds of the practical um, implications of these passages, but they go along even with what Paul says in Galatians. Um, where he talks about there's no Jew, or, no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. It's just an obliteration of all those social differences um, because those things don't really matter. Jesus is coming soon. So I gave you two different um, explanations for the word hate. One says, oh, it's mistranslated. The Greek word doesn't actually mean hate. And, and we said that that's not true. It does mean hate. Another explanation is that it means only hate the unbelieving members of your family, not the believing members of your family. And then this person now says, this is Ligonberry Mean 4551 on Reddit. He says, um, you need to have understanding when reading the Lord's words. He means hate their sin. Understand they are sinners. The Lord comes first. Hate yourself, meaning hate your sin. Hate the flesh. Hate all their views that are against Christ. Well, I think that if you're talking about the Apostle Paul, there are verses that um, very much talk about hating your sin and hating your flesh. Um, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. You, again, you're just you're just adding in something to make it more palatable for yourself. It's just these wild 
speculative interpretations to get away from what's clearly being said in the text. And I think like it does border on just being disingenuous. And, you know, I'll just keep harping on this main point. I think it's really frustrating to me to engage with people about a text that they claim is the word of God. And maybe they claim is the word of God that has no errors in it. And they're unwilling to even engage in a way with the text that lets the authors of that text speak with their own voice. Like they force either their own belief on top of the text and what it says, or the belief of another passage on top of the text. And I don't think that even interpreting scripture with scripture, if you want to use that as your hermeneutic principle, I don't think it means you just force the meaning of one text on top of another. I think you try to find a way where both of those texts can at least be able to speak for themselves. I think that's only um, honest. I think that's the only honest way to do the reading. And I think that believing that it's God's word or not God's word shouldn't affect how you can understand what the text is saying in context. And I think that what John and I try to do here is understand the text beyond just um, what it literally says, and also try to understand some of the historical context it was written in as well. Um, it's not enough to just say, oh, respect that it's God's word and um, that the text is really meaning really means this that I'm saying, even though that's nowhere in the text. Yeah, and um, looking at the historical context, I think, is one of the most valuable things you can do, and I believe it completely backs up our point here, because who were, like, the first Christians? Who were the audience that would have been, that the Gospels are addressing? Well, they're addressing a community of Christians that are coming out of um, Judaism, and you know what? They're being rejected by their family. Christians were having a hard time because their families were rejecting them. That's pretty obvious, and you can you can see that un- underpinning everywhere. And the problem comes in when people think that the Bible is talking to us now, and you can and everything in the Bible relates to us now. And we and no, like what Matthew is saying here and what Luke is saying, um, that probably resonated very differently to those people than it does to us. To us who are, you know, living in, in America, it's, it's jarring in a way that may not have been to, to those readers. Yeah, I totally get your point. I think that that's right on. So when it comes to the letters of Paul, a lot of times Paul sort of gives his uh, reason for writing. It's like this controversy in this church or this doctrinal aberration or people aren't following closely Paul's teaching or to challenge some sort of like, um, you know, false teaching or problems in the churches that he's founded. Um Unfortunately, the Gospels don't give us um, a preface that necessarily tells us um, what issues they're addressing, but they do a lot of the same thing. They address issues that were going on in the church at that time. And so one of the biggest issues in the early church was Jewish believers who uh, thought that you needed to follow the law and Gentile believers who uh, did not necessarily want to get circumcised. And... um, and didn't think that you had to follow the Jewish law or Jewish customs. And um, this controversy runs through all of the Gospels and um, the writings of Paul and um, was probably the earliest controversy in the church. Um, They had to call the Jerusalem Conference to basically settle the question. 
that's interesting because again, the the schism that's happening amongst people and their families is reflective of uh, that same type of an issue, like uh, the Jewish Christian sect question, um, this offshoot of Judaism, and was it really Judaism? And if Gentiles were included, like now it's like a Judaism that doesn't necessarily even follow the law. Um, so you can see that would be alienating to people's families, and that the sort of complicated uh, Jewish sect that was following Jesus would... Um, their doctrines wouldn't necessarily align with conventional Jewish thought at the time. Um, and so some of these passages are probably addressing that antagonism. Yeah, I think that um, in all of these discussions, what we're really finding is that Christians are more interested, evangelical Christians, and I'm speaking generally, they're more interested in believing a version of Christianity that aligns with what they want or what their life currently is. So it's it's like an exercise in motivated reasoning or confirmation bias. And what we're trying to do on this show is to expose areas of the Bible that are jarring to that um, way of thinking and that way of life. And uh, it's not always convenient. And, you know, we, we talked about this on our episode about the rich and capitalism, where Jesus very explicitly says, like, you have to give up, like, everything you own. He doesn't, again, I keep coming back to this, but he doesn't say, like, you have to be willing to do it. He says, you have to give up everything you own. Like, that's a radical statement from Jesus. And people, people, their gut reaction is, well, that can't possibly be what um, Jesus is saying. Like, no, it's actually what he's saying. Like, he actually said it to a person, like, in the story, and the person couldn't do it. And, um... And he says what a hard thing it is to do, like, and that's where. And then it comes to the passage about the uh, the a rich man going through the eye of a needle. It's harder for that than um, for him to join the kingdom of God. And um, so I think people need to kind of radically adjust their understanding of of who Jesus was, or at least who um, the gospel writers portray Jesus to be. It's frustrating because I think that that was the criticism that I always heard of liberal scholars was, oh, they're just creating a Jesus that is tolerant to the culture or, you know, reflects uh, like a modern perspective. Um, and I think that's what, that's a fair criticism. I think John and I have discussed uh, one of the problems with uh, historical Jesus studies in general is that people end up with a Jesus that resembles sort of the Jesus that they want him to be. Um, and that's just uh, because I think we have varying information and uh, people, I think, are uh, dispute what's historical and will naturally gravitate towards the things that they're, they find uh, affirming and uh, be repulsed by the things that they're not. But that's not really good scholarship. Um, you shouldn't start out with that as your goal. And that's a criticism of liberal scholarship, but that is what like the conservative Christians are doing. They're allowing the cultural Jesus that they have in their mind to uh, be the Jesus that allows them to misinterpret what's actually in the text. And I think that, for me, is really frustrating. I would love to—one of the things I want to do is not— make people agree with my perspective or our perspective, but just to think a little bit, just to be able to think about uh, these texts in a different way. And I think that they'll be uh, surprised at how fascinating it is to think about them this way. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a good concluding note. But I'll also say that, you know, Jesus does not make a big point about his own local family. In fact, we talked about um, that verse where he basically says, they're, they're not even my family anymore. And um, he was all about his disciples and he was all about his message. Again, to, our, to the point of our initial episode on this, you really can't go through the New Testament especially and make a really like pro-family message. Uh, and that's our point. And like, you know, I'm looking at these, I'm looking through these comments and I've already given you three different explanations to that verse in Luke and I just found like three more. So the Christians themselves, they don't even have a unified, um, evangelicals don't even have a unified answer to how to interpret these verses that gets them out of the problem. And they keep saying to us, like, oh, it's in context. Oh, you're not reading it. Or it's so obvious if you... But they don't even have, like, a singular message. I feel like they need to get together and and decide on how they're going to interpret it before they come on here because um, they're all completely giving mixed messages. As I was looking at these two passages, the Matthew uh, version and the Luke version, uh, Matthew 10 and uh, Luke 14... Um, and just doing the comparison, um, John and I were talking about Q and the redaction process and, um, you know, the textual uh, tool that you use is basically what's more likely to be changed. And so um, hate, it seems, would be much more problematic sounding and would be changed to uh, changed by Matthew. Um, and like we, we brought it before, the Gospel of Thomas also has hate. He, the Gospel of Thomas actually has hate your family or hate your mother and father twice um, in, in passages. I was looking around just to see if I could find some sort of uh, scholarly reference um, in regards to Luke 14. And it was like not that easy to find even a good answer by scholars. But then the first book that I found, um, which was a political study in uh, Acts and Luke, um, and a commentary, essentially was saying the same thing that I was, that there was an, a strong anti-family uh, notion in Luke's gospel. We don't know which uh, statement was original, but that Matthew clearly uh, has the statement differently. And they even said that the Mark passage in Mark 3 may have been a way of reaffirming the family into the new community to address this sort of like harsh-sounding statement that was out there about hating your family. So... The tools that you kind of can pick up for textual criticism are relatively simple, but you can see a lot of things that are complex that are going on. Yeah, Ben, that's a really good point. And it, it's it's a principle of um, of studying the Bible that when you find a you know what seems like a problematic passage or a problematic interpretation, um, textual critics do this all the time when they are looking at ancient manuscripts. And what's more likely that somebody took like a, a normal sounding verse and then and then decided to change it to have Jesus hating telling people to hate their family what's more likely that or that somebody changed it later to soften it and we see many instances of this i don't have them offhand but we can we can do an episode on that um where scribes and translators through the through the years have softened um, difficult passages. And the principle is always, well, the more difficult one is usually um, the better translation because that's the one that they're trying to fix. And we know from we know from looking at it that Matthew and Luke do this with Mark. 
Um, so we can see it in action even before the scribes get a hold of it, that Matthew and Luke will take ambiguous or problematic passages in Mark and both change it, but change it in different ways. And um, sometimes they'll maintain the continuity with Mark, or one of them will, but the other one will change it. Um, but so we know that Matthew and Luke used this sort of redaction. Um, and so that statement was there and one of them changed it. It's just very simple. Um, and I think if you want to believe that what Luke meant was what Matthew said, it's just very in unexplainable to me that how that statement ended up there um, if they're using the same source, which is the obvious theory. Yeah, I think, Ben, we, we dealt with most of the um, the major criticisms. I mean, these comments, they just they turn into threads that go on and on. I have to say you have dealt with it with amazing composure and uh, you didn't, you never let it, um, as is often happens in Reddit, is it kind of like devolves into a total chaos and you didn't do that at all. So if, uh, if any of you out there want to see us on Reddit, follow our account and, or feel free to uh, join our um, subreddit, which is r slash skeptics Bible project. Yeah, maybe we can talk another time about ad hominem attacks and uh, whether the Bible can stand up to scrutiny no matter who is uh, the one asking the questions. But um, I hope that any listeners uh, who were on Reddit or part of the discussion feel like I was respectful. I tried to be. Um, I don't even think, even dealing with the comments now, I don't. we don't mean to ridicule anyone um, the goal really is just to have a thoughtful discussion and hopefully, um, the best case scenarios for folks to just question their basic assumptions, um, and then go from there. Yeah. And I'll say also, I mean, 99% of what you find on the internet is, um, an echo chamber. So it's, it's Christians talking to each other and we're trying to go outside of the box. We don't only want to be taught. We certainly talk to skeptics on Reddit. We're involved with, uh, other um, non-believing communities as well. But um, we do want the perspective from believers. And, um, and some of the comments were good. Some of, the, some of the things that some Christians said made me think a little bit, and they, they offered some good insight. And uh, so I hope we can keep that conversation going. But, but so much, what we have found, so much of evangelical Christianity is insulated, where they are not open to um, free and open discussion, and um, they look at any type of like critical, um, critical message as an attack, and um, and they treat it as such. Which is why so many of the comments come with like, "Oh well, what's your bias going into this?" Which is really irrelevant. You know, it doesn't matter what my if what I'm saying is true, it doesn't matter what my bias is. And now it's time for Bible versus Bible. <laughs> Okay, welcome to Bible versus Bible. Today we are going to take a look at another um, synoptics versus Gospel of John um, seeming contradiction, and we're going to kind of break it down and um, and then uh, see what you guys think. So Matthew four verses one. This is directly after Jesus' baptism. So it describes in Matthew the end of Matthew three. Um, Jesus' baptism and the Holy Spirit descending, etc. And then Matthew 4, verse 1, it says, 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So it's giving a chronological account. It has the baptism, and the very next verse is, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I'm going to read the parallel verse in Mark now. This is Mark 1, 10 through 13, and I'm going to start a little bit earlier. I'm going to start actually at the baptism. So in Mark it says, And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit brought him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. So immediately after it has the Spirit descending on him, and then immediately the Spirit brought him out into the wilderness. So that's the chronology given in Mark and in Matthew. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, it describes his baptism in um, chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1. And then chapter 2, it says, on the third day. So it means three days later, after the baptism, three days later, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And then the mother of Jesus was there. And then it goes on to describe the wedding of Cana and the miracle of changing the water into wine. There's no room given for him being driven out into the wilderness for 40 days because it literally has him three days later um, going to the wedding in Cana. And when I read, I was reading um, some evangelical like explanations for this, trying to resolve the contradiction or explain it away. And I was expecting them to say, oh, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. That just meant the third day of the week, which would have been Tuesday. That's what they were going to say, that this is just talking about on a Tuesday, Jesus went to the wedding. But no, I actually didn't see that explanation anywhere. And I'm glad because that doesn't make any sense. Because in the context, it's giving a chronology and it's saying there was the baptism. And then on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. So clearly, uh, there's a different chronology given here uh, between John and the Synoptics and people that have listened to the show or studied textual criticism know that John has a very different chronology. It's not just here. It it goes to the resurrection accounts and then Jesus' entire ministry. And um, you can give many examples of how the chronology is just completely different. But to inerrantists and to people who believe the Bible is perfect without any error, well, John's telling a very different chronology than what you find in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, does the Gospel of John have the wilderness uh, account? No, the Gospel of John doesn't have any of the temptation of Jesus uh, in the desert at all. Um, it's a it's strictly a synoptic story. And the wedding at Cana, uh, is that in the synoptics? No, the wedding of Cana is only in the Gospel of John. Yeah, I mean, it's shocking that people try to harmonize it because it just it would create a narrative that makes no sense. Um, and I think that in a strange way, I think the real thing that happens is John's gospel gets prioritized as sort of like the um, ultimate synthesis of the earlier gospels. Um, and sadly, I think Mark's gospel gets ignored a lot of times. Um, I like that um, Luke 
has immediately also because Mark, that's like a, a literary device that Mark uses all the time to drive the action yes. of his account. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like ironic that when Luke is clearly quoting Mark um, and and is like quoting that literary device that Mark uses because Mark's narrative is just like constant like action. Immediately they did this and immediately they did that. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's obvious that uh, as far as Bible versus Bible goes, that it's a contradiction. Um, but I think it's also like not as much of a contradiction as maybe because it's just a totally different narrative in John um, to try to force the narratives to be um, saying the same thing is just really you'll just completely miss John or you'll completely miss what the synoptics are saying, because um, the whole way the narrative is constructed is different. Um, the order of events are different. It has different events. It has, uh, it doesn't have, um, parables really. It's the interesting part that I found was the immediately from Mark, um, that got replicated in, in Matthew. Cause I think that's, uh, that's, uh, interesting. And I think that the contradictions within the synoptics are also a little bit more, problematic from my standpoint because they reveal changes in um sort of materials that come from the same sources um so they show evidence of like a redaction like what we talked about earlier um in the text from whatever the earliest uh writing was um Whereas, like, John is a problem if you believe in an inerrant scripture because it's telling a totally different narrative than the rest of the synoptics. But if you're looking at it as a totally different tradition, it, it would be kind of foolish in my mind to even try to make it um, cohesive. Yeah, I mean, the Christians that I know um, have would have differing views of this. I know some who would really try to argue that there is no con- chronological contradiction at all, and they would... Um, go to any means necessary to uh, to try to get out of this seemingly obvious problem. And then I know Christians that would be much more flexible to say, no, inerrancy really doesn't is not talking about the chronology because um, you have to take into account the fact that Mark is crafting a story and um, and that in order to craft the story to move the story along, there are literary devices used. You can't really use that as. So I mean, I would say, listen, if if it's giving a chronology that is clearly not correct. One of these is not correct, or both of them are not correct. But they're, they can't both be true. So if you have a version of inerrancy that is strict, that says every word is perfect and that there are no errors of any sort, then you're wrong. There are. Uh, and this is a good example of one. But I don't ultimately think this is that important. I think a lot of people would listen to this and say, well, who cares? So what? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm not harping on this like it's a uh, it's like it somehow destroys like a person this should destroy a person's christian faith i do, but i do hope that people will um see things like this and realize that you can't have such a stringent view um of inerrancy yeah i think that's very true you're completely right it's if if you break it down to its most simple form and just ask the question are they saying the same thing they're, they're clearly not saying the same thing Right. False Witness. This is False Witness, the segment where we take a look at three verses, two of which are real 
and one is false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to analyze each verse and find the imposter. Once we have each made our choice, I will open up the wax-sealed envelope and reveal which verse is indeed the false witness. Take it away, Ben. Okay. Number one. Forget what has come before. Do not dwell on the past. See? I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Number two. The past has gone away. The future is yet to come. Now I am free of both. I choose joy. And number three. You also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Right off the top, the one that stands out to me as being definitely biblical is number three. I don't know if you feel the same way, but that to me just seems like all I have to go on these because I don't know them. I just have to go on kind of like a gut reaction. And to me, number three really seems real. Um, Number one and two, though, those both, something seems a little odd to me about them. So I'm like debating between those two. Yeah. I don't have a strong feeling about any of these, um, but I think that number two is the false witness. <laughs> like the the words seem super familiar to me, but for some reason I think they're like the lyrics of a song. I'm probably totally wrong. Um, yeah, when I, I read it, it sounds modern to me. When it, right? I choose, I it sound like a yeah. pop song or something. You're I'm right. gonna choose two. Uh, if if this is like from the Bible, I'm gonna feel like an idiot. But well, no, I mean, I think I choose joy doesn't sound biblical. It sounds like modern to me. Like it's a quote. It's a quote from somebody. Yeah, yeah, and the, none of them really are clear enough in like doctrine to eliminate or confirm whether they're biblical. They're all kind of just saying. They're all very affirmational kind of. Uh, yeah stuff so it's hard but i i just um i mean maybe this is a bible verse and i've just read it on a bunch of greeting cards and it were it's a weird translation but i have to think i kind of think number two is fake let me read number two again for the audience so but, but i'm choosing number two also so both ben and i think number two is the fake it says the past has gone away the future is yet to come now i am free of both i choose joy all right i yeah, I think that's got to be the uh, the false witness, but let's see. Let me start with uh, number one. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Comes from Isaiah 43, 18 through 19. So that one is biblical. And then I'll should I go to number two or number? I'll just go right to number two. The past has gone away. The future is yet to come. Now I am free of both. Right now, I choose joy. Deepak Chopra. Yeah, I knew it was some crap. (laughs) (laughs) A quote from the infamous Deepak Chopra, who we are not huge fans of here on the show. Uh, And then number three is is the one that I was pretty sure was real. comes from Ephesians 2.22, in whom you are in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, uh, we were Oh, able so you consider Ephesians real, I guess. Well, it's actually in the Bible. 
as oh, to okay. as so to the part of the canon. <laughs> as to the authorship, uh, whether or not it's a Pauline epistle, that's that's debated. For the purposes here, Ben, we both got it right. We sniffed it out, and um, Diana's going to have to try a little harder next time. Yeah, I'm happy because if I would have gotten that wrong, uh, I would have been really angry at myself. Um, but that was a good one. I just wanted to end the show with a quote. Who is more humble? The scientist who looks at the universe with an open mind and accepts whatever the universe has to teach us? Or somebody who says everything in this book must be considered the literal truth and never mind the fallibility of all the human beings involved? Carl Sagan. Good night, everybody. Good night. The Skeptic's Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skeptics bible project and follow us on all social media platforms at skeptics project got questions or comments email us at skeptics bible project at gmail.com Ooh.